Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor at The Hollywood Reporter, and I'm joined as usual by the one and only Master Daniel Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Dan, welcome. Thank you. After the past three weeks, I am half the man I used to be, so I'm maybe the half and only. <laughs> Each week on the podcast, Dan and I go beyond the headlines of the top TV stories and offer a deep dive into the latest news. This week, we're back at the Hollywood Reporter headquarters after what feels like an eternity at the Langham Hotel in Pasadena, where we spent the past two and a half weeks covering the Television Critics Association's winter press tour. Number one. Dan, how many hours of television do you have to catch up on from the past couple weeks? Well, let's see. So I left for Sundance on the morning of January 24th. I returned home home last night so basically take every single tv show that i watch multiply it by three and that is the number of episodes of stuff i have to watch this weekend so and that's not including the netflix all at once binge the 17 shows that they've dropped in the last couple weeks oh too, right? no no that's okay. definitely not including anything that netflix has dropped that i haven't gotten to it also isn't including anything that's coming up next week or the week after that I have to review for The Hollywood Reporter. So this is just making sure that I can get back to some sort of loose equilibrium and getting caught up on the basics. So, yeah, it's going to be a, a fun weekend around my parts, I would say. Well, one show you are cut up on is Breaking Bad. This week, The Hollywood Reporter broke news that the Breaking Bad feature film that creator Vince Gilligan is working on is a sequel, and it's starring Aaron Paul, who will reprise his Emmy-winning role as Jesse Pinkman. Sources say the film, which will be directed by Gilligan, will follow the escape of a kidnapped man and his quest for freedom. Dan, what do you think? Are you here for this? I am curious and willing to give it a shot. My policy on these things tends to be, okay, well, if the person who created the show believes that he has more things to say, I'm not going to tell them that they don't. And certainly Vince Gilligan with Better Call Saul, another show that I'm currently caught up on. Thank you for not airing new episodes lately. You know, he's proven that he can carry this story on beyond what could have just been a very contained entity. So I don't want to rule it out. On the other hand, you know, Rob Thomas was responsible for the Veronica Mars movie, and it was a big blob of fan service nonsense. another season of it coming to Hulu. Which, again, I am willing to be tolerant of, except that... I'm now cautious of it, but it is, again, Rob Thomas, uh, in the same way that I was willing to give Gilmore Girls and its extra four episodes the benefit of the doubt because it was Amy Sherman Palladino returning. And I didn't think that was an utter disaster, but you it... You just wanted to know what the last four words were. Well, that was what we had to go through the previous four hours to get to. I didn't think it was a total waste of my time. On the other hand, I don't know that I required it to complete the mythos. And similarly, I don't know that I need a Breaking Bad movie, but if Vince Gilligan tells me that he wants to tell this story further i'm for it but i think the fact that he's considering continuing the story kind of points to a problem i've always had with the breaking bad ending was that it's a little bit too neat and closed and it felt like it was trying to make sure that audiences had closure well we had closure and now he's removing our closure and that confuses me a little bit talk to me a bit about the business of this how this came together this is where it gets super interesting and look this is a project that's top secret no one is commenting but the rollout for this will be fascinating to see because instead of airing first on AMC, it's actually going to be a Netflix release. And then 
air on AMC. And that's backwards from how the show originally ran, which, of course, it aired first on AMC and then producer Sony TV sold the streaming rights to Netflix. And the Netflix, as we know now, we call it now the Breaking Bad Halo. So after the show dropped on Netflix, that helped boost originals, which we've seen with everything from shows like Riverdale to you and everything else. So, But we've seen it with such small evidence on those shows. Like in the case of those shows, they definitely found audiences on Netflix, but it didn't ripple backwards to their regular cable or broadcast airings. And that's why the Breaking Bad effect is really sort of a one-off when it comes to Breaking Bad, it seems to me, because that's an example of a show where it actually did go backwards and suddenly lots of people were watching the show on AMC. Right, and that boosted originals, which is what happened between Riverdale season one and season two. It dropped on Netflix and in between and all of a sudden season two came back roaring out of the gate. And then but, I mean, managed to squander that audience, what with Riverdale being overheated garbage but neither here nor there <laughs> but how do you really feel dan <laughs> oh i've watched every second of riverdale except for the three episodes currently piled <laughs> up on my dvr because as established i'm three weeks behind on everything but like financially it's interesting i keep saying it's interesting because it is but <laughs> and because i'm tired and all i can see is the inside of the langham hotel when i close my eyes but i mean this is something that netflix is going to pay sony more money for so they should get it first you know amc has its reputation for being thrifty i'll say <laughs> with caution and this is a network that we like, too. I mean, you know, the other thing that came out of TCA was a different programming strategy that we're starting to see within the AMC suite of networks with shows like Killing Eve, which airs on BBC America, and A Discovery of Witches, which airs on Sundance TV. Both of those are going to get bigger platforms and also air on AMC proper and get a whole night of originals. They're going to air back to back. Dan, what do you think of that? That, to me, is a great strategy. I think it's a great strategy, and I think that it is, to use your word, interesting. Potentially even more than that, I would go so far as to say fascinating. I think it is really a worthwhile thing that they're going to try to do to expand the audience for Killing Eve, which is one of those shows where, as BBC America will tell you, it is one of the first shows in some number of years, eight, ten, however many, to have its linear ratings go up every single episode in its first season, which already shows that there is an audience out there that is growing at every And hearing step. about it. <laughs> and so just giving it that extra level of exposure, it seems like a good idea for a show that really does deserve it. The thing with Discovery of Witches is it was already a much broader show than I think they for some reason realized it was. It's not a good show, but it's a broad show and the fact that it was only on Sundance now, this pay subscription service that I don't think a lot of people have any clue of how they could get, it really probably the whole time belonged on one of the more accessible platforms within this family. So the fact that they're now going to get an extra ripple of airing out of it is is nice. Also completely irrelevant because it was renewed for two additional seasons before it ever appeared on these here shores. So, you know, it doesn't impact it. It just gives a wider audience to a show that probably is capable of having a wider audience. Yeah, absolutely. It also comes amid a different time at AMC. After Charlie Collier left for Fox, we've seen Sarah Barnett expand her role beyond BBC America to include AMC and Sundance. And David Madden has done the same, where he's added programming oversight of BBC and Sundance TV. And one of the other announcements that almost got kind of buried during TCA was AMC dropping two of its more expensive and lower rated shows with Into the Badlands and The Sun, both ending with their upcoming seasons this year. Ah, The Sun. I watched every episode of the first season of The Sun. I reviewed the first season of The Sun. I cannot remember much of anything about the first season of The Sun other than that Pierce Brosnan had a ridiculous accent and... 
yeah, that, that, that's about that's about it. That's about yeah. all I got. So yeah. I got nothing on that. <laughs> like, I think more people are probably surprised that that's a show that is coming back for a second season than that the second season will be the last season. So yeah, I don't and, know. And the Into the Badlands cancellation or final season announcement really kind of caught me by surprise because I always kind of saw that as a show with a large cult following. But, you know, when it's an expensive show and AMC doesn't own it, this is the, the 2019 landscape. And that's a show that I think probably people are going to discover down the road in different services and be like, why the hell didn't I watch this show? And by the way, when I say people in that case, I mean me. I've been meaning to catch up on Into the Badlands for years because every time I see clips from that show, I'm like, my God, that looks so beautiful. It looks gorgeous. I'd love to at least give it another chance. I stopped after like five or six episodes in the first season because the dialogue and performances were pretty universally awful. But it is still a show that had a distinct visual signature and you know i think people will get a kick out of it eventually when they realize it existed much less than it ended well that takes us to our second topic this week let's turn to the future of friends on netflix number two after a slow start with the broadcast networks the back half of tca focused on cable and streaming including kevin riley offering his first public remarks about warner media's upcoming streaming service the tnt and tbs chief did his best to preview what to expect from the Netflix rival service when it launches in the fall. But to me, perhaps the biggest takeaway from his time before the press was that Friends quite very likely won't be on Netflix much longer. In December, for those not in the know, Netflix paid Warner Brothers about $80 million to keep Friends on its platform for another year. Riley was asked specifically about his plans for Warner Brothers Crown Jewel and said that it's, quote, not a good model to share assets like friends and that the company's crown jewels should be, quote, exclusive to the service. This is tragic. Horrible. I don't know what I'm going to do. No, honestly, I kept buy, buy friends on DVD <laughs> or just subscribe to the Warner service because eventually they're going to make us subscribe to everything until somebody just starts bundling stuff and that's fine. No, I I have to admit, Kevin Riley is one of those executives who I always actually find very, very interesting and fascinating and worth listening to. And his press conference at the TCA has kind of caused my eyes to, to glaze. I, I feel like... It was a lot of inside baseball stuff, <laughs> even was, for me. Like, I feel like I play inside baseball. I know pretty well what inside baseball is. I was sitting there and every once in a while he would start going through charts of things and I just was not able to follow. I mean... <laughs> Is this ultimately what everyone's going to do in the next three years? Start pulling their content from Netflix so that they can have it at their own beck and call? I mean, my guess, yeah, that's what we're seeing Disney do with its Marvel titles and Netflix. And I'm not talking about the Marvel script and original TV shows. I'm talking about the feature films that will all move to the Disney Plus service, which also will launch in the fourth quarter. And, you know, look, Comcast is going to launch its streaming service, too. That means the future of The Office on Netflix is also in question. But at the same time, Warner Brothers getting $100 million or $80 million from Netflix to keep friends on its service for a year in which their service doesn't exist yet, that's a lot of money. For a big conglomerate to turn their nose up, like if Netflix wants to pay them another $100 million to keep it for 2020, but Warner Brothers already has its service, how do you justify it to shareholders that thanks for the $100 million, we're, we're okay, we don't need that right now? That well, seems 
I mean, I think with that case, it really is almost a monopoly money thing. I think that to them and to the shareholders, I think you really can't just say, look, we could take the $100 million now and it would just be a $100 million check. And sure, that might be nice for you, but we can also hoard our resources, keep anyone else from ever getting friends ever again and giggle maniacally over in the corner and force people to come subscribe to us. So it's whether you're playing the short game or the long game. To me, I kind of look at this as, boy, that was a, a sort of flimsy and weak gesture from Netflix is part paying because you know for them maybe it's less monopoly money uh, you know 80 million dollars that's three episodes of ozark for heaven's sakes <laughs> I, kid. Show, I kid i kid sorry ozark i love you but no i don't what am i talking about i'm not gonna <laughs> pretend that i love ozark just to back out of a joke no so like they pushed the ball upfield for a year basically is what they did for 80 million dollars which shows the value that they put on things like this like the panic that they must be quietly feeling. They're not going to publicly be feeling it, but they're obviously worried about what happens if suddenly they wake up in a year and a half and they don't have friends and they don't have the office. And they don't have Shameless and other Warner Brothers titles or Comcast titles or Disney titles. But at the same time, Netflix has spent the better part of the last decade building up an incredible roster of scripted originals it's producing in-house that it has paid for. And will Netflix miss all those acquired shows? Of course. I mean, Shameless and Friends are two of their most streamed originals or so we've been told, but 40 million viewers apiece <laughs> says lifetime. No, wait, <laughs> but listeners should go back a couple episodes ago to our uh, wonderful conversation with THR's Natalie Jarvie, who we went into depth when NBC Universal was announcing their version of their own streaming service. And I think it's going to be so interesting to see in two to three years, provided the earth survives, whether you know, what Hulu, I still don't know what Hulu's going to look like. And no one just directly asked Hulu's Craig Irwich at his press tour session. So what's Hulu going to be in five years? And I don't think he would have had a good answer. Exactly. The same but, as Charlie Collier doesn't know what Fox is going to be like in a year. But it's still my question. Like, if you ask me what my top five questions were for Hulu, my question number one like is... one through four. <laughs> yes, exactly. What are you going to look like in five years? And no one asked. And I would have been curious to at least hear how he would have spun his wheels. So it it is... Very funny, though, that Friends, this thing that aired in syndication forever and that is available in multiple different forms on DVD and Blu-ray and all of that is... And still airing on Viacom Networks, including Nickelodeon, <laughs> where we tune in every single night. Is apparently a thing of such power. God, like if you're the Warner Brothers streaming service, how much do you offer those actors to come back for a miniseries as part of the launch? Everything. Like, Everything. <laughs> a slice of ownership of the service. It I is mean... such a real question, though. Like if you were to say to those guys, for $5 million per episode... Would you make eight episodes well, for the launch? Well, first of all, I think that's less than what like Jennifer Aniston is getting to do an Apple show. No, no, five million per episode. Per episode, I, uh, yeah, I still think that that's less. I, I don't know. <laughs> Apple's paying her. She's got like seven Brinks trucks in her in her driveway. But if right I now. were Warner Brothers, I would be actively pursuing trying yeah, to same. make that occur. And I assume probably it's the kind of thing where basically someone has a standing call to David Schwimmer every other week. They're like, "So, do you need the money yet? So, do you need the money yet?" <laughs> <laughs> and one of these days, he's going to wake up and be like, "Yes." And, and look, even if they just get together for some like reunion taped thing where they're all sitting on the couch and talking about what the show has meant to them, I'm here for it. I would watch them read the phone book at this point in my life. Aww. <laughs> well, you mentioned Hulu. Let's go into our third topic of the week. Number three. Hulu made a lot of noise during its TCA session for animated Marvel shows, series pickups for drama starring Abigail Spencer and Elle Fanning, teaming with Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese for... Devil in the White City, which was set up as a feature film. But to me, it was the June 5th premiere date announcement that's really worth diving into for season three of The Handmaid's Tale. 
that June 5th date takes The Handmaid's Tale, the former Emmy-winning best drama series, The Handmaid's Tale, out of contention for the 2019 Emmys. And it really clears the decks for HBO and the final season of Game of Thrones. Of last year's best drama series nominees, only two are eligible this season. It's Game of Thrones and This Is Us. Handmaid's Tale is out. Westworld doesn't start production until March. Stranger Things doesn't return until July. The Crown is the second half of the year show. And the Americans, of course, wrapped last season. It's also worth noting that HBO doesn't even want to compete with Game of Thrones as they scheduled Big Little Lies season two for June out of the eligibility window. And that's a show that's competing in the drama category instead of limited series. So, Dan, the race is really wide open. Well, it's wide open for a bunch of nominations. And yes. I think without any question, I think the race is closed. I, I mean, I know that a lot of uh, a lot of pundits have a lot of months of a lot of analysis still to go on this. Game of Thrones is going to win the Outstanding Drama Series Emmy come next September. And, and keep in mind, Hulu <laughs> won Best Drama the year that Game of Thrones was not eligible. But they lost last year when they went head to head. And I think they and were aware won. of that. And I think that probably Hulu also is aware that the last season was not as universally or relatively universally loved as the first season. And even though even though when they were asked about that, they seemed unfazed, I'm sure they're aware. But no, to, to me, Game of Thrones is pretty much an odds-on lock to win drama series. And I would say that probably Veep is equally odds-on to win for comedy because it's its last season. You had Julie Louis-Dreyfus and the beating cancer factor in addition to the Julie Louis-Dreyfus is a, an unbeatable Emmy, Emmy goddess, assassin. Yeah. And let's be honest, the best we have and, you know, awesome and great and all that. This is not to take anything. The fact that it is boring as hell that she keeps winning Emmys does not take away from the fact that she is completely worthy of them and it's funny because if you're amazon you're like well but we we had marvelous mrs Maisel, and it won last year and it won the globe and it won it's winning everything surely we should be the favorite over seven episodes of veep that no one has seen i would put money i would put all my money my imaginary money i'm not putting we're, we're any still money playing with this. monopoly money okay this, then this i'm putting episode. all of my all of david schwimmer's uh <laughs> salary for a friend's reunion all in on veep winning comedy which means that the two biggest categories for emmy night are basically out of contention for any real meaningful conversation and we should only be talking about movie and miniseries we should be talking about danamora versus sharp objects versus fossey verdon and versus catch 22 Catch-22. and there's our there's our conversation we can have that conversation now for five months <laughs> let's save that for five months from now but in, in the meantime i think with a wide open drama category, it, it really does open the door for some new arrivals in, in that category, like Killing Eve, The Good Fight, Homecoming, Pose, maybe even Succession on HBO, which was excellent. I I am right there with you. I you know if this opens the door for Succession to get a drama series nomination, I feel wonderful about that. I, I would feel great about Pose. You know I think all of these shows dropping out of the category leaves also a lot of acting nominations, and so really the casts of Succession and Pose, and to a lesser degree Homecoming could fill all of those categories so julia roberts emmy nominee sure why not but she was for the normal heart she you know she 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 doesn't need she doesn't need our money or our love or much of anything she's doing just fine yeah i i would be curious how this plays out you know having an extra couple actress nominations available does that mean maybe jodie comer can get a nomination in addition to sandra oh always getting nominated you know it's a it's it's a two-person show and they're each great come on uh, and then there's fiona shaw but still I, I would like to see some 
mixing up of the deck taking place as a result of this. But really, as I look at it, it's just we've got seven months of talking before Game of Thrones and Veep win again. <laughs> yeah. Well, either way, it'll be interesting to see if any other cable networks or streaming platforms alter their release date strategies to avoid going head to head with all the dragons. So I think that's going to take us to our fourth topic this week. What the hell is going on with stars? Number four. This week, stars canceled Critical Darling Counterpart, starring J.K. Simmons, after two seasons. And the decision to cancel came less than two weeks after CEO Chris Albrecht announced he'd be leaving the network in March amid a turf war with new corporate parent Lionsgate. So what does this mean for programming? Well, it means that Lionsgate is going to start doing what pretty much everyone else in town is doing looking to own more of its original content. And Counterpart, which was picked up straight to series with a two-season order by Albrecht, was produced by, you guessed it, an outside studio. So how do we kind of look at Chris Albrecht's tenure at, <laughs> at Stars? Because he was brought in amidst so much, so much discussion that basically he was going to bring that HBO secret sauce to Stars. And I think that if you look on certain levels... You know, their brand for a long time was kind of teehee, lots of fleeting nudity and overpriced dramas that no one really talked about. And I feel like they have a much more solid programming base now. I just don't know that it's a programming base that anybody talks about. So how do we look at that as a tenure? That's a great question. I don't know if you can really look at it as a tenure. I mean, I think one thing that we, we could talk about is that he did a lot to bring great programming for underserved communities. Look at Stars' roster. I mean, a show like Vita, it's unlike anything else that's on television. And I think he should get some points for that. But at the same time, you know, look at what's coming up on, on the network. Outlander and American Cods, both of those are, are owned by outside studios. But on the flip side, a lot of their more compelling programs too, like Vita, Sweet Bitter, Now Apocalypse, are owned in-house. So I think it, you're kind of seeing the beginning of the Lionsgate era and if you remember a year ago when they announced the John Wick TV spinoff with Keanu Reeves, owned by Lionsgate. So. And we had a panel for American Gods, which has been off for a long time. And you had Neil Gaiman and a particularly vociferous uh, Ian McShane basically trying to tell everyone that there had been no problems whatsoever between the first season and the second season and that it was all wildly overblown and that it's just business as usual and the second season's going to be more like the book and it's good and all that. Did you buy any of that? I always love when a showrunner discredits my reporting on the TCA stage. Um, <laughs> that was a story that Maureen Ryan and I teamed on. We probably, between us, had 40 or so sources, Some, many of whom were connected to the show. So I didn't buy into anything he said, and I won't be writing about his shows. Good luck. I hear the search for a showrunner for season three is not going well, and it's been they've been trying to find one since December, and here we are mid-February. They have no deals. They've been turned down by half of the town. Good luck. There were strange things that were going on regarding how they chose to be defending themselves on the TCA stage, including Ian McShane suggesting that a reporter asking a question hadn't read the books. And she's a freelancer for us. She has read the books. She very definitely has read the books. There was there was a large assumption Ian McShane was making there. And I always love when he calls Mo and I hysterical women, although not by name, but he in his defense, he didn't single us out by name. But he's taking issue with our story. And, and I take issue with that. <laughs> I take issue with anyone calling me a hysterical woman in 2019. I think he just called you hysterical, but acknowledged that that is inherently a gendered statement and yet went on and said it anyway. It was not his finest moment. I'm but. really glad I wasn't in the room for that. 
<laughs> not his finest. So yeah, so let's let's talk briefly about Counterpart because I, I find that cancellation to be a logical disappointment. Uh, I think it is a show that by rights should have been more popular than it was, but even more so should have found some sort of traction with awards groups. And that to me is a show that the, that Emmy voters killed. The blood's on your hands, Emmy voters. If you had just been capable of realizing how good J.K. Simmons is in that dual role and given him the darned Emmy nomination and Golden Globe nomination he deserved, I should note that he did at least get nominated for a TCA award. So so we did our part. But still, that's that's a show where because the ratings weren't good and it was obviously very expensive and obviously a hugely epic production, but still, I don't know that they would have canceled it if it was a show that had a Emmy nominated anchored role. And, and I also wonder if they if they wouldn't have canceled it if Albrecht wasn't leaving. I mean, this was he was championing these shows. His reputation is is really if you want to talk about what he leaves behind, this is a guy that was doing straight to series orders well before Netflix entered the business. This is a guy who was renewing shows for season two before they even aired. And he saw the tea leaves. He read basically that these are shows that are going to need time to grow. And he was willing to make that investment, which is something that you're starting to see broadcast networks and cable networks do more and more with some of these these smaller watch things because they want they realize, A, we need to give these shows time to grow. And B, it takes actual time looking at DVR data, building an audience, possibly using Netflix to help promote a, you know, a second season in between in advance of a third season premiering. I mean, you know, if you want to talk about one of the things he leaves behind, I mean, that's that's definitely something to his credit. And I don't know if you have any knowledge, but do you want to either help listeners who are fans of Counterpart Dream or trash their dreams? Well, if you had to guess, is that a show that has potential to get picked up by someone else? I have no idea, but I, I would imagine that in this era where everyone wants to own a piece of every pie, I would be surprised. I mean, at this point, picking up a show like this, it's it's considered damaged goods. It's not like you're, you're Netflix swooping in like, we're going to save this because we want, you know, we want to make... Fans of Designated Survivor, you know, who are watching the show internationally <laughs> with apologies to Netflix. You know who you are. I know you're listening. We just talked about this. But Designated Survivor is a huge hit internationally. There was a reason for Netflix to pick up that show. Little known fact. Also, I don't know if you know this. That's a show that's had several showrunners. It's five, Dan. <laughs> and three seasons. More, more showrunners than seasons. I'd just like to toss that one up Every there for episode, you. you guys. Every episode. <laughs> Well, I think that's a good point for us to go to our fifth and final segment. As always, we wrap things up with our Critics Corner. Number five. This week's new premieres include Umbrella Academy on Netflix, DC Universe's Doom Patrol, Amazon's Lorena docuseries, Fox's Kelsey Grammer vehicle Proven Innocent, and Showtime's Desus and Mero. They join returning series including Last Week Tonight on HBO and Dan, one of your favorites, Survivor. What's worth watching this week, my friend? Well, uh, what's worth watching is, as I may have mentioned... Your entire DVR. My entire DVR, three weeks behind on absolutely everything. So you can watch whatever you want to this weekend. I'm watching four weeks of Top Chef. But besides four weeks of Top Chef, which I recommend that people watch anyway, because it's a really good show. You know, not necessarily one that I write about ever, other than on Twitter, but still, good show. So, yeah, have, you know, certainly haven't seen this week's Last Week Tonight, because that would be impossible, but I'm really looking forward to that, because every week that goes by and John Oliver can't help me process the world, I, I feel a little bit thinner and, and less informed and sad. So, looking forward to that. Definitely looking forward to Jesus and Mero premiering on Showtime. I think that 
they're sort of two voices that are on the verge of a blow up and in a good way, an explosion, you know, a breakthrough. Cutting how, through. <laughs> how, Gonna whatever, help you out here, tired, my tired friend. Appreciated. Yeah, they're they're on the verge of a breakout. And so I think this should be a good opportunity of the of the new stuff. Look, Proven Innocent is utterly disposable trash. It's not really worth your time. But if you're a fan of people involved or of generic legal procedurals, it does exist. Doom Patrol is much better than Titans in terms of DC Universe's live action output. It's actually fairly clever at times. I, I don't care about any of the big things going on in its story. It's it's another misfit superhero story. I don't care about the potential end of the world scenario or whatever that nonsense is, but the characters are nice and Brendan Fraser gives a good vocal performance. Tim Goodman's review of Umbrella Academy, which is now up on THR, is not all that positive, and I believe that echoes a lot of what I've heard. Uh, people seem to be suggesting it's another Netflix superhero show, which means too long and not carefully enough curated, which is too bad because I feel like every single one of them could be good shows if they didn't all have to be one size fits all. So one day Netflix will learn that. And Lorena is interesting. It also doesn't need to be four hours. It, it you know, the first three hours are if you happen to be alive 25 years ago, you are going to remember at least basics about the case, the Lorena Bobbitt, John Wayne Bobbitt case. And if you just giggled when I mentioned Lorena Bobbitt's name, as a room full of TCA reporters did when Amazon announced that she was going to be at our party at the end of tour, perhaps you need to watch so that you feel bad for laughing. Because I think that's the thing that the documentary does better than anything else is makes it clear that anyone who was giggling about this really should feel a little embarrassed. Did you get to meet her at TCA? I chose not to, but if I had, I would have said good on you for good on you for moving on. Good on you for for finding a life after this and for not just being a a tabloid punching bag. And she certainly could have been and her life now is is a good and satisfying and meaningful life. And you know, if you're if you're going to be inspired by anything, she she's not the most powerful woman in the world. She's not the most famous woman in the world. She's living a good life. And she was holding court at TCA when I met her. Yeah. And and let her and let her enjoy a few minutes in the spotlight where people aren't making jokes. <laughs> that that would be how I would how I would feel about it. And the last episode of Lorena really is the one that if you have to watch, it's it's worth watching. I just don't know why it had to be four hours. I think if someone had crafted this as a really good two-hour and ten-minute documentary, it it could have been something excellent. Instead, it's something that's kind of hit and miss, but has things about it. What are you watching this weekend, Leslie? I'm watching the inside of my eyelids. I'm gonna sleep. <laughs> if you want to see why we're so tired, thr.com/slash TCA. This feels like a good note to end things on. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week. And until then, be sure to subscribe on your various podcast platforms. And if you like us, feel free to rate us, review us, tell your friends, tweet, tweet us. about us. Yeah, tweet at us. We're always happy to hear from folks. And yeah, till next week, Leslie. Till next week, Dan. <laughs> <laughs>